This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So shortly after his conversion, in the height of the reign of Theodosius the Great, Augustine seemed taken with the triumph of Christianity. While I think that I am making an overstatement, it is clear that Augustine contrasts the times of Plato, the decline of the Roman world, and now the triumph of the Christiana tempora, of the Christian times. In his book, De Vera Religione, Augustine notes that from the incarnation of the Lord, the world had been changed. From Jerusalem, now throughout the world, these Christian times have seen the triumph of true philosophy, which, as the title of the book says, is true religion. Christianity is not the elite and individualistic philosophy of the ancients, nor is religion reduced to civic piety or even the imperial cult. Now, all people are trained in true religion, and the oneness of humanity in Christ is evident in the piety of the Christian faithful. Indeed, in challenging Platonism and pagan piety, Augustine appeals to the Christiana tempora as evidence that within history, now Christianity has brought together right worship and true philosophy for the whole world and all types of people. Perhaps we could see this as a new epoch in history, the Christiana tempora. If Augustine understood the Christiana tempora as a temporal reality bound with the Roman state, which again, I judge to be an overstatement, then it is clear that this political triumphalism diminishes over the next decade. In his work De Consensu Evangelistarum, or On the Harmony of the Gospels, Augustine uses the phrase Christiana tempora to emphasize the singular significance of the historical dispensation of God's mercy in time, culminating in the incarnation. The prophets all point to the incarnation and the churches drawn from the effects of the incarnation to include the whole world. However, in around 408, Augustine responds to a question attributed to Porphyry called De Tempore Christiane Religionis, on the time of the Christian religion. This question challenges the very historical singularity of Christianity, so dependent on the incarnation in history. Porphyry's acute question is as follows, quote, if Christ says that he is the way of salvation, grace, and truth, he locates in himself alone the return of souls who believe in him. What did people do for so many ages before Christ to leave aside the times before the kingdom of Latium? Let us take the beginning of humanity from Latium itself. For many centuries, Rome itself was without the Christian law, the Lex Christiana, for a long stretch of time. What was done concerning countless such souls who were without any sin at all, since the one in whom they could have believed had not yet offered his coming to human beings. The world along with Rome was fervent in the rites of the temples. Why did he who was called the savior absent himself for so many centuries? What happened to Rome or Latin souls which were deprived of the grace of Christ's coming?" End quote. This quotation focuses on Porphyry's criticism of the temporal locatedness of Christianity as well as the claim by Porphyry that there is no single or universal way for the return of the soul. Porphyry's criticism here is not simply of Christianity. Indeed, a portion of the quotation, which I admitted, omitted, Porphyry dismisses Israel and the Jewish law as being itself historically located, localized, in the same manner as Christianity. To this end, Augustine's initial retort is to observe the obvious. All religious rites, and ceremonies are localized and initiated in certain times. Surely the Roman religion has a beginning, 
before which other rites and religious practices existed? Would Porphyry deem the Roman religion invalid because it has a terminus a quo? Certainly not. Augustine demands that Porphyry attend to his own principle and simply change with the times. He, or the one asking these questions through Porphyry, should simply celebrate the Christian ceremonies now. In a sense, if the times have changed, using Porphyry's logic, one should simply get with the times. The more important objection Augustine identifies is whether the Christian religion truly worships God and hence leads the human to God. To state this differently, is the Christian claim to singularity and universality grounded in the incarnation of Christ valid? If so, how would it apply to those outside Israel before the coming of Christ? And we might assume to those to whom neither the law nor gospel has been taught. To this dimension of the question, Augustine's reply is fascinating. At least I will say fascinating. He writes, quote, Therefore, all those from the beginning of the human race who believed in him and understood him somehow or other and lived pious and just lives according to those commandments, whenever and wherever they lived, were undoubtedly saved through him. The faith itself has not changed, nor is salvation itself different, because in accord with the different times, there is now proclaimed, as already having happened, what was then foretold as coming. Hence, one and the same true religion was signified and observed by other names and signs, then and now, early in a more hidden way, while later more openly, and earlier by fewer, but afterwards by many." End quote. Augustine, in response to Porphyry's question, has not abandoned prophetic history, which points to Christ's universal function and sacrifice. Moreover, he does not waver on his commitment to the importance he gives to the historical development of these Christian times. All who truly worship God, Augustine avers, worship the Son. They all in some form looked forward to what was affected in the incarnation. The Christiana tempora are the concrete realization of the effects of the incarnation. Indeed, Augustine's response to the third question, which concerns the difference in Christian worship now, and the similarity of the worship of the ancient Jews and pagans, who sacrifice the Christians now reject, restates this point. Augustine states that sacrifice and worship is offered to the one true God. Augustine writes, quote, all such sacrifices, however, are signs and likenesses of certain realities. And they ought to teach us to examine, to recognize, or to recall those realities of which they are the likenesses, end quote. The pagan rites and other religious ceremonies, such as Job's, are not faulted because they have temples or sacrifices of animals. Rather, they are in error if they are not offered to the one true God. As he will also in the city of God, Augustine observes that Latreia should not be offered to any creature or anything that is not the creator. Therefore, while sacrifices of the Old Testament were different, just as they were before the law, they were congruent with the times of God's dispensation. Now the true sacrificial victim of the one priest is furnished by the shedding of the blood of Christ. This is not a change in God or religion. Rather, Augustine gives the example of the same man offering a sacrifice in the morning and the evening, both in accord with the appropriateness of the hour. It is these later hours, the evening hours, which seem to be the Christiana tempora. Sometime in early September 410, reports and even exiles from the sack of Rome, August 24 to 27 of 410, began to reach Hipporegius. We begin to see, potentially, Augustine referring to the sack of Rome in his homily somewhat tenuously dated to September of 410. 
However, later in the month, at least by October, we find homilies that are beyond doubt given in the months following Alaric's conquest. Though Augustine's response to the tragedy does not come down to us in the form of the vivid lament of Jerome, the significance of the sack of Rome is realized not least in his magnum opus, De Civitate Dei, but also in several extant sermons. The sack of Rome was not a distant event for Augustine. Not only had he lived in Rome, but as he notes, fellow Christians, who he knew personally, were in the city when it was sacked. Moreover, the conflict in Italy extended to intrigues in Roman Africa. In some measure, we may assume that Augustine was aware of the impending conflict and escalated tensions beyond the serious trials of those fleeing before Alpharic's army to seek refuge in North Africa. In Augustine's homilies following the sack of Rome, we repeatedly see the bishop's concern for these refugees. In these homilies, Augustine undertakes a robust response to the sack of Rome. One of Augustine's major concerns is witnessed specifically in his treatment of what appears to be a pointed pagan non-Christian, but as well a Christian criticism of the notion of the Christiana tempora. This criticism of Christianity, and particularly the recently Christianized empire, has a range of implications, but is fundamentally grounded in the claim of social, cultural, and especially political decline. While the phrase, as a positive use, holds to the progress of Christian times as a kind of Christian triumphalism. Augustine's sophisticated response to Civitate Dei has been taken by some scholars as a response to Roman conservatism, which views Christianity as responsible for the decline of Rome. In his homilies, Augustine heavily qualifies such narratives of decline, but also emphatically rejects the Roman truism of imperium sine fine, as I've said before, the Roman imperium without end. Augustine's sermons from 410 to 411 that explicitly or apparently discussed the sack of Rome were given in various cities throughout Roman North Africa. In nearly all of these cities, without regard to the place, perhaps the most prominent theme is that of the Christiana tempora or the Christian times. Many, it seems, were up in arms about the difficulties of these Christian times. The distinction of the Christiana tempora is associated, as noted earlier, triumphalistically with Christianity's tolerance and later acceptance publicly and ultimately imperially following Constantine and ultimately the, the, with Theodosius the Great. The Christian times were said to usher in something new through the prominence of Christianity. I'll say it again. While Augustine himself had praised these Christiana tempora in De Vera Religione, it's around circa 390 through 91, Later, the phrase no longer held the same vestige of imperial triumph as bound with the su success of Christianity. So it is that some years later, we find Augustine responding to the phrase as a placeholder for the decline of Rome. So he himself begins to use this as something that is identified with a kind of decline. If the term was triumphalistically used by Christians before, now pagans and likely other Christians are using the phrase to indicate the social and political decline evident in the Western Empire. <laughs> Dobio 6, Sermon 23b from 404, describes pagan complaints about the Christiana tempora, in which there has been decline, particularly of the theater and the amphitheater in the cities, perhaps when we try to date this, following the enforcement of anti-pagan imperial legislation. Augustine observes, quote, some say, indeed, there are many evils and many are getting more common ever since the times began to be Christian. Augustine responds, as he will in later sermons, that these critics need to read their own histories 
because there were many hard times and wars before with nations snatching power from one another. However, Augustine also is willing to concede his opponent's claim of decline. He proclaims, quote, we do admit that some things are happening more frequently, that through lack of materials and a deteriorating state of affairs, those buildings that were previously constructed with great magnificence are now falling and collapsing into ruins, end quote. Yet, were times, were better times really better? He notes, quote, what an extravagant waste of materials constructed the theaters and amphitheaters. Were the times better because vanities were more freely available? Because the reins on filth and infamy were relaxed? Because anybody was allowed to do easily what it was bad for him to enjoy? Assuredly, those are the auditora of infamous filth. Observe what goes on there and see when the times are better, when these things were being built or when they are falling down, end quote. Christian times may be a kind of decline, but not all decline is for the worse. Indeed, for Christians, Christian times present the same calling to be children of God. Augustine emphasizes the theme of divination prominently in this homily. He also, it is also a time or calling, he says, to give alms and to have concern for the poor. I think notable dimensions of what then the Christian times truly are. In these sermons, Augustine has outlined much of his response to Christian and pagan critics after the sack of Rome. The sack of Rome certainly increases concerns about the Christiana tempora. Augustine's responses vary in several extant sermons addressing the Christiana tempora and the sack of Rome. Yet consistently he replies, I'll outline this, one, what is promised under the Christian times is not earthly prosperity. Two, former times were not truly better or necessarily worse than present times, though at times he presents different rhetorical positions in this regard. Three, people are wrong to associate the Christiana tempora with the endurance of the walls and buildings of Rome and the haughty mythology of Rome as an imperium sine fine. And I think interestingly for the figure of Job and the story of Lazarus and Dives, so the rich man and Lazarus, challenged the Christian toward charity, a charity and mercy that are ever present, not limited to political narratives. And Sermon 81, again from 410 or 411, Augustine recounts hearing, quote, little speeches of individuals saying, quote, look what Christian times are producing. Look at what scandals. They even seem to quote Matthew 8, verse 7, 18, verse 7, Woe to the world. Augustine does not encourage his congregation to give up on the world. Rather, he glosses what world in this verse means. He defends the goodness of the world as such and makes a distinction between two radically different worlds. Augustine declares, quote, there's a bad world, there's a good world. The bad world is all the bad people in the world. It's pretty simple. And the good world is all the good people. What world is, what world is it that people should love? Augustine notes that the proud love the world they have made in their wickedness, but the meek in their good deeds only find pleasure in God. Hence, we might infer the Christian learns to love the world in meekness through love of God. What he will say later, this no sumus tempora, that we are the times, good times are good people who love rightly God and neighbor. In another sermon from the same time, Sermon 80, Augustine takes a similar approach to the criticism of the Christiana tempora. He responds famously, quote, if we live well, the times are good. We are the times, nos sumos tempora, we are the times. 
As we are, indeed, the moral quality of our lives, so are the times, end quote. One should desire good things and eternal goods, and such desire is prayerful. One should pray with insatiable eagerness, with one's whole intention to seek temporal goods in moderation. Augustine also acknowledges the difficulties that many face. Should the Christian blame God that evils abound in the world so that the world itself is not loved? Certainly not. Rather, it is true that the world is evil. Quote, the world is evil, look it is evil, and thus it is loved as if it were good. What is the evil world? It is not the heaven, not earth, etc. For all these things are good. For Augustine, the evil world is that world made evil by humans. Said malum mundum, mali homines faciunt. Augustine encourages his congregation to follow the examples of the saints, the fideli sancti, and obey what God has ordered and hope for what God has promised. Yet he observes, quote, as long as we live, we are not able to be free of evil people. As I have said, let us moan to the Lord our God and let us bear evils so that we may preserve to do good things or persevere to good things. The criticism of the Christiana Tempora does not abate in a season. Rather, nearly one year after the sack of Rome, in Sermon 296, given on the feast of Saints Peter and Paul, so June 29th, 411, Augustine responds to a different criticism of the Christiana Tempora. In this sermon, he recounts individuals observing that the Memoriae Apostolorum, that is the shrines of the martyrs and saints of Rome, particularly Saints Peter, Paul, and Saint Lawrence, did not protect the city of Rome. One says, he says, quote, Rome is devastated, afflicted, crushed, and burnt. So many heaps of death are happening through famine, through pestilence, by the sword. Where are the memorials of the apostles? End quote. Rome suffers so many evils. Are not, they ask, memorials of the apostles there to protect the city or even the citizens? Augustine replies that the memoriae apostolorum in Rome are not there to inflame people to pursue temporal felicity, as if the shrines of the saints are signs of temporal prosperity. Rather, the memorials of the apostles point to and stir people, especially the faithful, to strive for their eternal felicity. Nevertheless, the pagan says to the Christian, quote, look, when we used to offer sacrifices to our gods, Rome continued to stand. Now, because the sacrifice of your God has won the day and been so frequently offered, and the sacrifices of our gods have been stopped and forbidden, look at what Rome has to suffer. End quote. These objectors to the Christian times proclaim in the temple that, quote, the gods who protected Rome have not saved it now because they are no longer, end quote. To this, Augustine again reminds the pagan and Christian to recall Roman history. Rome has been burned at least two times in the past, by Gauls and by Nero. So Augustine bitingly says, quote, why do you like growling against God for a city that has been in the habit of being on fire? End quote. Perhaps not the most subtle response. As before, Augustine asks if people mourn and weep the fate of Rome because of the timber and stones, or even the dead who are going to die. Indeed, hardships such as death, the death of loved ones are going to happen even if Rome did not fall. Do these personal hardships and troubles not matter? It is true, Augustine acknowledges, that many Christians suffered dreadful evils in the sack of Rome, as some point out. It may, in fact, even be, as some say, that the world, indeed the human race, now suffers more, much more devastation than before. Yet people do not seem to notice those suffering. 
Rather, even in their complaints, they are like divas with Lazarus and Luke. They were blind to those in need before the sack of Rome and now seem to bemoan the loss of temporal goods, which Christ has taught the Christian not to seek. Quote, what Christ is guarding for you, can the Goth take away from you? Augustine says, the importance of Rome is not its stones, and the memorials of the apostles are not the protectors of these stones, least of all of Roman civic culture. With some sarcasm, Augustine concludes, quote, so the memorials of the apostles by which heaven is being made ready for you ought rather to have protected for you on earth the crazy follies of the theaters? So that's why Peter died and was laid to rest in Rome, is it? In order that not a stone of the theater might fall, end quote. Rather, for individuals who enshrine the might of Rome and Roman civic culture, Augustine averse, quote, God is knocking the playthings of boys from the hands of ill-disciplined adults, end quote. People should be angry, but this anger ought to be at oneself, for this anger may lead one to repent and not to sin. Instead of jealousy or blasphemy, the Christians should love God through feeding God's sheep. This is a call to the bishops and priests more than any. All Augustine encourages should Quote, just look next to you, in case perhaps what you should do for your neighbor is help him reach God, end quote. This is to say that Augustine notes the deeper social reality, one transformed by Christ, this reality of the neighbor. This does not simply mean the Christian, but rather through the church, one's fellow human in need of aid and in a sense, in need of mercy. In Augustine's De Civitate Dei, the Contrapaganos, De Civitate Dei Contrapaganos, Augustine takes up a more thorough criticism of paganism, as the title suggests. Augustine's deservedly famous introduction condemns the Roman myth of divine blessed dominion, which is truly a domination of Rome by the libido dominandi, to spare the conquered and subdue the proud. To this, Augustine, of course, presents God's action in time to resist the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, from James 4.6. <clears throat> Now, Augustine's criticism of Rome is of its mythological narrative, its imperium sine fine, its divinely sanctioned perpetual authority, and its co-opting of religion for its own ends. To this end, Augustine is clearly not an anarchist, and while critical of Roman imperium, composes in Book 5 what later authors will call a speculum principum, or a mirror of princes. Augustine's reflection centers on the emperor Theodosius. The emperor Theodosius is not frequently mentioned in Augustine's writings, and only twice in the same section in City of God. In Book 5, Augustine recounts Theodosius' battle, which I'd mentioned, with the usurper Eugenius, and describes how Theodosius did not turn to pagan rites, but rather asked the guidance of the monk John, an Aramaic ascetic from the Egyptian desert. As I perhaps only suggested in a previous lecture, in turning to the ascetic John, Theodosius is not consulting the oracles, but rather the holy Christian on earth. Augustine says of Theodosius, quote, he rejoiced more to be a member of this church than he did to be a king upon the earth, end quote. Augustine praises Theodosius' Rabilius religiosa humilitas in his penance after Thessalonica. He also praises the breaking down of pagan statues. About the Battle of Frigidus, Augustine even concludes the lines from the poet Claudian in praise of Theodosius, quote, O dearly beloved of God, for whom the very air does battle, and the winds, your sworn allies, come at the trumpet's call, end quote. Sort of a pagan poet wrote this about the whole legend of the 
spears turning back and killing Eugenius's soldiers. Theodosius is, it seems, an ideal emperor, loving his enemies with Christian charity, corrected by ecclesiastical discipline, offering to God the sacrifice of humility, mercy, and prayer, and holding to the supreme value of eternal life. Yet Augustine carefully cautions that the emperor Theodosius is only called happy, or beatos, in hope of the world to come, not because of his status here. I want to note, somewhat briefly as an aside, a development of the genre of the speculum principum. Fulgentius of Rispa, a North African bishop nearly 100 years after Augustine, aware of Augustine's comments in City of God 5, does not so simply extol the emperor. Fulgentius, in contrast to Augustine, does not focus on the emperor, but the contrast between the emperor and the bishop. He writes, quote, therefore, as this relates to this life and this age, it is certain that no one is more powerful in the church than the bishop, or nobler in the secular world than the Christian emperor, unquote. Fulgentius presents two specula, episcoporum as well as principum. The most merciful emperor is not a vessel of mercy simply because he's at the height of imperial temporal power. Rather, the emperor becomes a vessel of mercy by living in right faith and in true humility of heart, and as he submits the heights of regal dignity to holy religion. Beyond Augustine, Fulgentius reminds the emperor that he is, quote, a son of his mother, holy mother, the Catholic Church, unquote, and thus, quote, contribute through his reign to the peace and tranquility of the church throughout the world. Indeed, the emperor is to govern and extend this Christianum Imperium, Fulgentius notes, consulting the ecclesiastical position throughout the whole land. Now, you might think to this point, Fulgentius' articulation is congruent with Augustine's. However, the place of Theodosius is different in Fulgentius. The highest way of life, above any layperson or even the highest secular position, is that of clerics and monastics. By mercy, those who have given themselves over to religious life are true vessels of mercy, whereas the Christian emperors who wield temporal power have merely, quote, worn the guise of Christian religion. Hence, Constantine, for Fulgentius, acknowledges Anthony of the Desert and Paul the Hermit, and Theodosius relied on and praised John the Monk. The Christian emperor, in this instance, points to the exalted station of the religious life, even more so, it seems, in a Christian empire. This may recall to some Augustine's exchange with the monks of Hadrametum about the value and function of asceticism. However, what is more remarkable, I deem, is how these sections may function as a gloss on City of God 5 and the Speculum Principum. Perhaps Fulgentius shows an attentiveness to Augustine's thinking as it develops throughout the City of God. I want now to return from this aside to Augustine's criticism and response to paganism as a system, including its social and political implications. All of these things come to a head with Augustine's criticism of Porphyry in books 10 and 19. In Book 10, Augustine takes up and qualifies Porphyry's claim that there is no universal way for the return of the soul, which, as I have tried to show in an earlier lecture, is a political statement insofar as it justifies a kind of pluralism and the relegation of the highest intellectual end to the mind. Augustine observes that Porphyry admitted that there is a universal way, but that he had not found it. Augustine returns to the objection from Epistle 102, the one concerning salvation before Christ to those outside Israel. Augustine inverts Porphyry's question. He realizes, or he claims, 
Palfrey wanted to divide humanity by nation or group. In effect, Palfrey was blinded by his desire for there not to be a universal way. Augustine challenges Palfrey by asking him what he might have discovered had he searched for a way that was, quote, divinely imparted, not as the exclusive property of any one people, but as the common property of all people, end quote. Palfrey could not conceive of human solidarity, but only division. In his reformulation of Palfrey's claim in City of God, Augustine has united his criticism of the philosopher's tepid claim about a universal way with his commitment to divine providence. Therefore, Palfrey must not hold that divine providence could have left humanity without such a universal way of the soul's liberation. Why then does Palfrey seem to think that God's providence did not secure such a way? And why does he think that God provided it to so few? Augustine identifies several factors that led Palfrey to his pessimistic philosophy. The first is that Palfrey was afraid of being persecuted as Christians were. For Palfrey, as for many, persecution was a sign of failure. That is, persecution was a sign of bad philosophy. The second is that Palfrey viewed the majority of people as unequipped or unwilling to pursue the life of the intellect. For these commoners, there is local and civic piety, a low form of justice, and perhaps an ascent attained through virtue, such as Palfrey allows for Christ. For others, there is the mediation offered through theurgic rites or other means of spiritual purification. However, for both of these groups, excluding those who are simply wicked, the highest end of blessedness is not attained. To take from Julian Clark, as observed, Palfrey's theology is bound by the limits of his philosophy. It is elitist, and the highest end is rarely attained. Augustine's response to Palfrey centers on the universality of Christ's sacrifice, which is offered by Christ as both priest and oblation. Augustine writes that Christianity is the, quote, the universal way of the soul's liberation, that is, the way granted by divine mercy to all peoples. End quote. For Augustine, God acts on behalf of the weak, the wicked, and even the intellectual philosopher. Thus, even the highest blessedness is obtained for every nation and every kind of individual through Christ. Augustine writes of Christ's universal and efficacious sacrifice is mediated in the liturgy, quote, this way, the liturgy, the Eucharist explicitly cleanses the whole human and prepares the mortal human for immortality in all his constituent parts, constituent parts. In fact, it was precisely so that there would be no need to seek out one purification for the part which Palfrey calls intellectual, another for the part which he calls spiritual, and yet another for the body itself, or the bodily itself, end quote. <clears throat> Moreover, Augustine observes that Christ's sacrifice is offered and shared in the Eucharist, as he makes clear, I think pretty explicitly, in Book 10. Hence it is universal, localized, and effective for the purification and uplifting of the whole human. Thus, in Book 10, Augustine has diagnosed Palfrey's broader philosophical system and its valuation of religion. He responds to the tendency to exalt the individual, particularly the intellectual soul, while that same position relegates both the physical body and society to a remedial level of meaning. It is this social dimension that drives Augustine to return to Palfrey in Book 19 of City of God. In Book 19, famous often for other things, uh, Augustine's analysis comes full circle. Augustine addresses at length Palfrey's interpretation of several oracles about Christ. At first glance, it is not apparent 
I think, and when I talk to people, it's not apparent how Porphyry's treatment of Christ relates to Augustine's emphasis on true societas in Book 19, a true societas joined by true justice or a common understanding of right, of use. Yet in the context of Book 19, it appears that Augustine has become convinced that Porphyry's process of commentary and oracles concerning Christ is linked to the philosopher's broader social thinking. Through his use of oracles, Palfrey is not simply relegating Christ to a lower daimon. He is rejecting the implications of the incarnation, obviously, particularly the society unified around the true worship of one sacrifice. Augustine perceives Palfrey's rejection of Christ's divinity, the church, and Christianity as a proposal for a different social order. This proposal, he argues, possesses no true society and has no common res uniting humanity. Hence, it is one that is constituted not of a populace, but of individuals. For Porphyry, Augustine judges, there is no society, at least no real society. Porphyry conceives of religion as social only in a sense of a societas that is a base accumulation that needs purgation as the individual ascends to a kind of splendid intellectual isolation. Humans are alone together, to borrow a recent gross phrase. I know, which I heard a lot. I'm assuming you did as well. <clears throat> in contrast for Augustine, society finds its end in the communion of saints. From start to its ultimate fulfillment, for Augustine, it is social. We can see how Augustine has expanded his reading of Porphyry. He now asserts that Porphyry's use of oracles in order to snatch Christ from the Christians is not simply an attempt to relegate Christ to a mere human who is sent to the status of a lower divine being. Rather, Porphyry presents a complex rejection of the importance of the body, the societas of humanity bound by God and worship of God, and the belief that God, the high God, acts in time to effect such an end. Porphyry's argument is a defense of the status quo of the Roman Empire and of Roman religion. Cultic piety should be maintained in its variances. The one needs no worship, no sacrifice, but only a good life lived in virtue. Roman justice, a justice that could be just as easily translated to imperial justice of Greece or Assyria, but here, a justice that is relative to Rome determines what justice unites society. Social unity is, in a sense, the prerogative of various states. It is arbitrary. Palfrey's philosophical justice, however, hovers above this justice, above the material world in the ether of intellectual ascent. Instead of sacrifice to the one God, a sacrifice the Christian holds is offered in Christ and hence forms the church in the sacrifice, Porphyry permits, even argues for, obedience and sacrifice to Rome and to the lower and higher daimones, but not to the high God. Porphyry's higher end of religion has been individualized and reified. Religion as social and localized is an important concern in sense for Porphyry, though it is utterly separated from the highest aims of the intellectual soul. In doing this, so it is that the state's claims on one's body and philosophy and the philosophy that, um, philosophy that permits the vague pursuits of the intellect. Oh, no, I'm sorry. So it is that the state claims one's body and philosophy the vague pursuit of the intellect. For Palfrey, then, religion is merely under that common good claimed by the state. It is unsurprising that Augustine has found Palfrey to be not merely a strong critic of Christianity, 
but also a true servant of the political ideology of Rome. Christianity, in contrast, risked the wedding of the lofty one with the physical world. Through the incarnation, the body and human solidarity are not produced to the power hungry, the power hunger of the state. Nor is the state's claim of hegemony over bodies, over humans, as an arbiter of human solidarity given credence. The Roman state is a superstructure placed at best over complex human exchanges. The state does not exhaust human solidarity, but rather seems to attenuate what is most profound about us as humans. And this is especially so as disclosed and given in the church through the incarnation. In conclusion, I want to emphasize a few points. <clears throat> the first is the question of the Christiana tempora. Augustine's supposed change of view on this point is thought to give way to what some scholars call Augustine's secularity, that there is no sacred time. However, that there is no sacred time or sacred space for Augustine seems simply false. There is not an emptiness filled by the state or Roman imperium, nor is Augustine's view of Christianity something quarantined to the recesses of the mind. The incarnation affects a transformation in humanity and a profound inclusion in the church. This is real, this is in time and in space. However, the profound solidarity realized in the church calls into question the claims of the state. But more than anything, Augustine emphasizes the implication of Christianity on the whole human. Religion is not private, nor is it diminished beneath an imperial narrative, which seizes possession of the body and leaves religion to one's private hours. The whole human matters and the whole human is transformed, just as human solidarity is increased beyond difference. Solidarity bound together in love and mercy, and as such as the church, is properly constituted by loving, merciful, and fruitful relation to its neighbor, even if that neighbor is at present not part of the visible church. For the gift of charity is not made less incarnate because it is localized, nor because it is universalized. And I hope, maybe in too cute a way, this returns us to the fullness realized as I began in the Ascension and in Pentecost. Thank you. Yes. Uh, so there are some uh, uh, Christian thinkers today um, who have proposed that, um, in light of the um, I don't know uh, more morally deleterious realities of our current circumstances, Christians are better um, or should maybe retreat um, into into their own communities. Um, but you've emphasized um, in the reading of Augustine kind of the social dimensions of of. Uh, of the human life, um, and you also emphasize that Augustine's saying this, and mindful of the fact that it's bound by temporal realities, um, which I think, I, I wonder if you'd say that part of those temporal realities um, includes engagement in the political life, the broad political life of um, one's community. Yes. That's, so that's, do you think that would be maybe, so that, do you think that would offer maybe an alternative to what maybe some today propose as kind of a retreat that we can look to Augustine maybe as an encouragement for that type of political engagement? Yeah, so then basically does Augustine offer uh, something in contrast to what some say is like a Benedict option, a retreat and these things. So yes, I do. However, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to militate against that decision either. I take this to be somewhat prudential, et cetera. Uh, um, if you think 
of Augustine outside of America transplanted to, let's say, Christians that live in Syria, right? If you started looking at how, how do those groups live in completely other societies? Uh, it's not retreat, but there is a sense of being an enclave and these sorts of things as well. So there are ways to negotiate this differently. But Augustine certainly doesn't argue for retreat. And I want to take the City of God as being a quite remarkable text uh, in the sense that it really is a text written with the wind at his back. Uh, you know, the, the empire is Christian. He has the support of Christian emperors. Yes, Rome has fallen. But his criticism of Rome, as it sort of goes through, even as I try to qualify his praise of Theodosius, which I think is, is sort of becomes increasingly mitigated uh, in the rest of the articulation, um, that he is critical of this narrative of its hegemony, but yet not so that it, the, the Christian just retreats. Right? I mean, he doesn't label it just as evil, right? even as he's suspicious of the claims of the empire. So as a whole, I guess, as I added more than what you asked, yes. <laughs> yes? Um, when Cicero says o tempora or mores, he doesn't use it in the sense of an age or an epoch. He uses it in the sense that it's used in the New York Times, which is to say the like current ongoings mm -hmm. or yeah. the things happening right now. And then I'm curious whether Augustine, when he talks about Christiana Tempora, is using Tempora in the same sense that Cicero is in so far. And this would both yeah. explain why, even though it's affirmed that we are seeing Christiana Tempora, that whether it's an epoca yeah, fair enough. I agree. I agree with that. I would say the only reason in glossing this is that there's a lot of interpretation of this as epochal, as if you will, progressive and historical. And there are even some at the time who seem to think as such. You could see how that line can be blurred. But yes, that's right. So given, given that, I'm wondering how this, um, like, like, like we live in like bona tempora, uh, like si vivimos bona or something. Like if we live well. Nos sumos tempora. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, like how, how does that work then? If, if the Christiana tempora isn't like a period, but bad or good things happen. I guess he's like, he's like trying to reframe the Christiana tempora as good in like a deeper sense because the theaters are being destroyed along with the entire civil structure. Well, no, yeah, that's a different homily, but yes. So, uh, I guess kind of, I think his reframing is part of what you're getting at at the beginning. It's not epochal. So he's actually taking it away from a perspective that Christianity is the next phase of history that's moving up now to its end. Uh, even though he does have places for this as the child grows older. Um, but I, I don't, so as, as far as it relates to how it's, he's glossing it from these are good times because the temples are being broken down. He's also willing to say, but ha perhaps these are also bad times. But he is then emphasizing, we are the times in a certain way to say then, what are the Christian times? And he still will point, if we take this with the other homilies, to what do the shrines of St. Peter, Paul, or, or Lawrence point to? Like they point to something different, but it isn't sort of imperial blessedness. Is that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just strange because like, is this the shift? In Augustine, like like to like, like from the Christiana tempora being an unmitigated good. Yes. Because it like in, in the first case, the Christiana tempora is uh, somehow coincident with a stage of prosperity. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. To Chris Yannick and Tempora becomes reframed as either good or bad, depending on whether the Christian and Tempora are good or bad at any given moment. And as best as it, the Christians themselves are good and bad, well, they then, make well, the like, 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 Once you reframe it to be not necessarily good, what is the value of this term Christian and Tempora? Yeah, that's right. That's the point of what I say many scholars make of the secularity of Augustine. But then, of course, like that argument leads, as sort of just gesturing to, to some other claims that Augustine's not making. Secularity of time and space, right? In a sense, Augustine's not moving it progressively to come to that. Um, but I, I think precisely that's right. Like, it, it changes what it means. Yes? I was thinking, with regard to that question, your answer, um, one answer is that metaphysically, for Augustine, time is not chronology. Yeah. I mean, this is Book Eleven yep. of the City of God. I mean, of, of the Confessions, uh, Eleven, Twelve, and Thirteen of the City of God. So, as opposed to mere chronology or succession, time can only be experienced by a mind, as he explains, because it's a it's a extended present that's not a pure presence. So we can say that with Augustine, the good time is a good soul. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Now, if you mean good but, chronology, you're, you're asking a different kind of question. Yes. And then, unrelated, but it's, it's the motion of the soul. And last thing, this is why Job surfaces so importantly after 410 in Augustine's writing. Yes. That Job is the happy man. Uh, he's he's in terrible times, in strains, but the, the motions of the soul are integral. That's that's one way I try to carve out. And I, what I what I want to emphasize is that with Palfrey in the background, the motions of the soul is being good. They are in a sense also social, like they're in the world, they're concrete, they're in the church. So it isn't simply just a to use it sort of crudely a stoic goodness. But through the incarnation, the mediation of this transformation is going to be social, ecclesial, and manifest in love of neighbor, the giving of alms, and all of these sorts of things. And that little gloss then I think changes him from what Palfrey would allow for, the intellectual ascent, the soul as it purifies itself, and hence has good times, if you will, internally, to that very concrete lived life. Um, I was struck by I mean, the passage where you're talking about um, basically bad people delighting in the bad and good, meek people delighting in goodness. Um, it's a bit of a jump, but Teresa Lizio kind of talks about seeing the good in all things and being able to see how God is creating people yeah. in each moment. Is that what Augustine is pushing us towards to actually see both in individuals and in our communities how yeah. God is creating us here and now. Yeah, I think in, in the rhetoric of evil people and the evil desires and loves uh, may be more general, right? But then the image of Dives and Lazarus, like that these people then they complain, though you don't have to necessarily know them, about suffering and don't notice the sufferings of others, right, is a call to actually then not link suffering with one's moral quality or character. Uh, so then itself to see others 
what as humans in Christ, etc. So then a call to mercy and charity, love, neighborly love, etc. If that makes sense. So yes, uh, even as the rhetoric would seem to say, it's so clear, they're bad people, they're good people. Uh, that's more to say those people, they have made certain things that they want to protect for their reasons and now complain about sufferings, but they really don't care about sufferings. Like, why did no one care about all the horrible things that happened before Rome fell? Or all the horrible things that are happening elsewhere while Rome falls? Why do they care about the stones of the city, uh, of the theater, but not sort of, as he will say in some of these, it's quite remarkable, uh, the poor who are outside when we leave the church. So in a certain sense, yes, not only to see them, but also to see it in ways you wouldn't expect it. Could you speak to what you see as points of continuity between uh, Augustine's account of human solidarity for Christianity and the account of human solidarity offered by the Catholic social teaching tradition, Ugh. and then also oh. any points of discontinuity that you see? So I, I don't know. I would I would defer uh, since there's someone far more qualified than I am at that here, and if you would like it. So I, I can't really. I would say I, for my. I don't even know if armchair would count. Uh, I would see mostly continuity. I'm not sure about discontinuity, though. I'm sure some have made some. So I'm not. I really can't speak to that. I don't know. I used to be alone, wrote a social encyclical on St. Augustine. Yeah. Thanks. So mostly continuity then. That's what I'm saying. I used to be alone. 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 Holding him up as a model for understanding society. And so influential that even figures like Gustavo Gutierrez on Job is heavily influenced by Augustine provided in his commentary there. So, I mean, it, it sort of saturates many of these different responses Catholic social teaching. I don't, I don't want to say it's over, but I'm happy for it to be over. I would just say, I guess, thank you uh, for the past four days. I hope some of this has been clear enough. And then I hope we can leave and go to lunch. It's still a busy afternoon.